when people ask why I love YA, like this book is the perfect example. And it's the book that when someone says, oh, I don't like YA, I give them this book and say, you do. I promise you. (laughs) And nine times out of 10, they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I do. (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Ann Vogel, and this is What Should I Read Next? Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. I'm excited about today's episode because one, it's a great conversation. And two, we are going to answer so many questions I know you have about the process by which a book becomes a movie or film. I can't wait for you to listen. But first, I want to start with a shout out and special thanks to all our new patrons in our What Should I Read Next Patreon community. Their support makes it possible for us to do what we do as an independent show, and we are so grateful. If you would like to support us in this way, thank you. It is easy to do so. That membership is just $5 a month or $10 if you choose the generous support option. The perks are identical. And your membership comes with special perks like our summer reading guide and unboxing party video, bonus episodes devoted to new summer releases that are not in the summer reading guide, new Friday episodes of One Great Book and Mini Matchmaking, our upcoming June Ask Us Anything event, and more. Sign up to support the show and get your perks at patreon.com slash what should I read next. Readers, my guest today is Kat Ramsberg. She is based in LA with her four dogs and has what you just might call your dream job. She reads young adult books, often well ahead of their publishing date, to decide which ones will translate beautifully to screen. And then she works on forthcoming TV and film adaptations of these popular titles. While she loves this career and the books it sends her way, Kat says it sometimes feels like she's on the hamster wheel of reading tons of titles that don't fully align with her personal taste. She also doesn't have quite as much time as she'd like to reflect on the books she does read, and she misses the quiet, contemplative types of stories that don't make for the most exciting television, but often get five stars from Kat as a reader. Today, Kat is here to talk about those book-to-screen adaptations, and also for my suggestions for books, YA or otherwise, that she can enjoy during her personal reading time. I am excited to fill in Kat's commercial breaks with some personally rewarding reading selections. And you're going to listen to how that all unfolds. Let's get to it. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited. Oh, I'm so excited to talk today. So we are talking as part of our YA in May loose two-part series. We did YA in May in Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club for years. We're not this year, but we have this young adult energy that needs an outlet. And we got your submission saying what you do and that you would talk about it with us and our listeners. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, Kat. So thanks for coming on. Of course. I'm so excited. I've thought about applying for years, I think, as everyone does, but I would just have these conversations with myself about what three books would I choose? Which book would I say I didn't like? And I just could never come to a consensus. So I just didn't apply. And then I got the email saying like, Hey, we're looking for YA people. I was like, this is my shot. (laughs) I didn't even really think about it. And it was funny because they, uh, they send you your responses via email afterwards. And they were like riddled with typos and incoherent sentences. And I was like, well, 
just shot that shot. <laughs> Readers and Kat, you too. Like timing is everything. And we love to feature stories that we haven't talked about before, both in readers' lives and both in the actual titles of books. And thanks for sending in. And readers, that submission form is currently open at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest. I don't remember any of those typos, Kat. I just remember thinking, what a fun story and feeling that your love of books and reading really shone through. So thanks for sending it in. And tell me a little bit about what you told me. So give our audience a glimpse of who you are. Well, I live in Los Angeles, California, and I work in television and film development, specifically with a focus on YA originals and adaptations. So I live, breathe, dream, hope, wish by everything YA. Um, I'm a full-grown adult, and I just never quite grew out of that genre. I mean, I read other things, but I just, I think the evolution of YA, especially in the last five to 10 years has been significant and um, really reflects the world we live in, in a way that sometimes I don't find with adult literature. I also love to travel. I love to just like pick a city in a random country because I know they've got this cool bookstore that I've probably heard about on what should I read next. Um, And I love buying, you know, the different covers from different countries, but also I love to go into their young adult section and see what the big topics are in that country. What are kids reading and what are they interested in? But most of my time is actually filled with all my foster dogs. I currently have four. (laughs) (laughs) And they're amazing. Um, And so I just have a lot of foster dogs at any point, but they're, they're so sweet. And they've only destroyed two of my books so far, which I think is a miracle. Um, So I still let them come into my house. What books were they? (laughs) Or should we not talk about that? I, oh yeah, let's not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is giving me flashbacks to when I had to explain in German to my college German prof that the dog I was house sitting for actually ate my homework. Well, I'm glad the dogs and the books can mostly peacefully coexist. Mostly, yes. And they're really good at just sitting quietly when I read for hours a day. So, you know, I mostly foster senior dogs. So it's a little bit um, calmer than if I were to foster adult dogs. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. So, Kat, without giving the specifics, which are not for podcast consumption, how did you get into your line of work adapting YA for the screen? So I spent about a decade in New York working on Broadway in theater dramaturgy. I worked with a couple guys who wrote some big Broadway shows and also were working in film and TV at the time. And we sold a show to a big streamer and the show ended up becoming rather popular. And so we moved the company out here to Los Angeles. And while in theater, we call development work dramaturgy in Hollywood, it's just called development. And we continue to build out the company, creating shows based on YA intellectual property, we call it IP, um, or original YA content. We've also, you know, done some other stuff that's not YA, but my my love is YA. And so a lot of my job is just hunting down those properties and seeing if they make for good adaptation. And if so, finding the writer for it and seeing if a streamer is interested in buying it. And then we go from there. Now, we are readers who... I mean, listeners, if y'all are like me, you have mixed feelings when you find out one of your favorite books is being adapted. It's mostly, I can't wait, how exciting. And then for me comes the, oh goodness, what are they going to do with it? 
But often, Kat, I find out something is being adapted, and then I wait for it to actually be released. And I have the loosest grasp on what happens between acquisition and it showing up on my screen or a big screen somewhere. So tell us a little bit about what your role is in this whole process. Like, what are you specifically doing when you go to work in the morning? It is kind of a long process. So when you do see that announcement that this book was optioned by this people, don't get too excited because it, it could be a couple years before you see it. You may never see it also, which is really frustrating. So what happens is from the start, I go into the office, which is home right now, and we work with a book scout who reads everything that comes. And he'll flag 20 or 30 books for us every day. And I go through my email and I look and I'll pick one or two of those that I think might be a match for my company or a writer that we're trying to find something specific for. If they've said, we're really, I want to find a project and write about this thing, I'll keep my eye out for those books. And then I read them and we decide if we want to go ahead and make an offer on that. And sometimes you have 24 hours to decide if it's a really hot book, you know, if it's the next Adam Silvera, right? It'll get sent out on a Friday night at five o'clock. And by Monday morning at 10 a.m., you have to have offers in and they decide by Tuesday. And that's who gets the book. That's intense. Is that because it's being sent out to multiple uh, companies at once? Yes. And it doesn't go like a wide, somebody as big as Adam Silvera, it's not going to go super wide. They might go to like three or four targeted companies mm-hmm. that they know that's the brand of that company, but they are setting up a bidding war for sure. And then we go to our respective streamer and we say, Hey, I want this book. Adam's huge. His last book did this and his next book did this. And they look at the numbers of, of how many books he's sold and international sales and how big he is on TikTok and whatnot. And they decide on that if that is a number that they can support. And if so, they enter the bidding war and we know, and then we get the book and the book might not even be published yet. In fact, it's not. It's usually 12 to 18 months before the book is out. Oftentimes we are bidding on a partial, the first hundred pages of the book. So the author hasn't even finished it yet. And we're like, we know it's going to be the next big book. So let me spend a lot of money on this book. And say we win that bid, we get the book, then we find the writer. And that's one of the things I do. So occasionally, more often now, authors are actually wanting to adapt their own work. Some are really great at it. Some, they have other strengths, and that's writing novels. (laughs) So we'll try to match them with someone else who, and they can kind of work on it together. Or we'll, you know, let them do a draft and then we'll partner them with someone. Sometimes it's a matter of finding uh, someone who's already in TV. So we've got a well of writers we've worked with. Um, Maybe if if they don't quite match it, we'll do what we call an open writing assignment. So I'll send a thing out to a bunch of agents and managers saying, I have this book. It's this hot property. I'm looking for someone who can speak to these qualities of the book. You know, we want a writer who reflects usually the racial backgrounds of the characters. Um, If it's a queer character, we want someone who can speak to that. If it's an immigrant, maybe someone who can speak to that experience. We really do try to match it as much as possible 
so that the adaptation still feels authentic. Yeah. Once we do that deal, and all of these deals now can take two or three months to put in place, which is why it takes so long to see it come to television once you've heard other book was um, optioned. So once we get the writer in place and we do the deal, we'll do several steps. They'll do two or three drafts of it before the studio or network even decide if they're going to actually make it. So just because they've bought a book does not mean they're committing to it being made. And that's something I think a lot of people outside of the industry don't quite understand. So once we've done a few drafts and the network or studio looks at it and like, yeah, we think this is viable. Let's go ahead and they can choose at that point to either just make the first episode, the pilot, we call it, or they might commit to the entire season, the entire first season and then we start finding the cast and the directors and where we're going to shoot it and when we're going to shoot it. Because say it's got this great role and we want this actor for it, but he's committed to another show for six months. Well, we're probably not going to wait six months, but if he's committed for three months, we might wait for him or her mm -hmm. um, or them. And then that you know dictates when and where we can shoot. Um, if it's a show that has to shoot in rainy season, obviously we can't start shooting that in July. So there's just so many factors that take place that prolong the process. And then once we shoot, it takes six to nine months to shoot one season of television. Then we need another three to six months to go through what we call post-production, which is editing it, making sure it sounds right, coloring it and all of these things. And then it hits your screen. So <laughs> it's not an easy process at all. It's not a quick process, but I promise you every moment we're referring back to the book and saying like, what do people love about this book? What about the characters that, that people talk about? Because um, at this point, the book's been published and we do really want to honor that. And, and we make every effort to, I promise you, we make every effort. <laughs> Wow. So I can, I can hear what is being unsaid, which is you get a lot of questions about that. We do. You know, I think people, thankfully, people get really excited about a book. They have it in their mind, who should play it, how it should be done. What's the, the A story and the B story, which sometimes conflicts with what's actually the A story and the B story. Also, you think like a book, it takes four hours to read it, four to six hours, depending on your reading speed. But we have 10 hours to fill or 12 hours to fill. So we've got to stretch things out. We might take a character that was kind of a eh, and build them out so that we can talk about a theme that maybe was underplayed in the book. Or um, maybe we want to elevate a character from the book that we thought could have used more page space. And maybe the author. Often we are talking to the authors throughout this process. They're not kept off in a closet somewhere and not allowed to speak to us. So they might say something like, hey, you know, I actually had this scene in the book that I cut for editorial reasons, but it would work here. And then we incorporate that scene into the show. And you never know that that was a cut scene from the book, which I always think is the most exciting part when we get secret pages. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, I would love to get secret pages. Oh, yeah. Let's go back a little bit. You said that you may get up to 20, 30 books in your inbox a day. And of those, you often choose to read one or two. Yes. What is it that you are looking for? What kind of stories stand out to you and make you want to learn more? I always look for an interesting protagonist first. And by interesting, I mean someone who is active. They're really trying to solve a problem um, or ask a question. They're not sitting back and just watching the story happen. 
We also really, the biggest thing we have to look for is stories that are external, meaning there's a lot happening on the page and not just in the protagonist's head. Um, I personally love a quiet book that's just the protagonist sitting in a chair thinking. Like, <laughs> I could read those for days, but that does not make for good television. So it's more that we just need to show that there's an active, like, start to finish and a lot of things happen in between. Mm -hmm. And those things add up and build to a point where it just, it has to be on screen. It's, it doesn't, you know, I think I've read a lot of books where I go, oh, this is a book. And I send that note to my team and just say, I loved this, but this is a book. Or I loved this, but this is a movie and we're looking for a TV show right now. So it also Mm -hmm. has to show that it's like episodic. Like this is a book that lends itself well to eight or 10 or 12 episodes versus something that lends itself better to a two hour film or you on your couch with a cup of tea. People have big feelings about books they love, which I imagine makes things very exciting to bring to the screen. And also, I mean, I would be a little scared sometimes. It is. You are. Because I think like I'm just as passionate about these books as the readers who email us their thoughts are. Like I want it to be perfect too. And in fact, there's one book we have right now that it's one of my favorite books. And I did not want us to option it because I did not want the weight of that on my shoulders. But I didn't want some other company to have it and me not be able to dictate how the show was going to get made. So, you know, it's like, we are, we are writing the same hate emails to ourselves. Trust me. <laughs> oh, with great power comes great responsibility. That's really interesting to hear your thought process, Kat. Now, I imagine that this work in television has to have had an incredible impact on your reading life. And I don't mean incredible just as in terms of like good or wonderful, but like practically you're, you're reading a ton for your television job. I'd, I'd love to hear what your reading life looks like as a whole these days. I've always been a reader who will read anything and everything. <laughs> the library was my babysitter as a child and books were and still are my best friends. So I think that love of reading and problem solving has really led to my success in this line of work because I do read a lot of books for work, about 240, 250 books a year um, total. And I would say two thirds of those are for work. And I enjoy a lot of them and I don't enjoy a lot of them, but it's not my job to only create TV shows that I would watch. My job is to say like, oh, we have a need for this kind of show or for this audience member or this demographic or whatnot. And we look for those things. And I think that like just being really curious about content in general makes you successful in this job. And honestly, I've learned so much about genres I wouldn't really have been into. And I've fallen in love with books I never would have picked up on my own if I didn't have this job. So it's good because it challenges me as a reader. Um, You know, one of the things I do, I always get your summer reading list recommendations. Sorry, what's the official title that the summer reading? (laughs) We know what you're talking about. Yes. (laughs) And I read every book on it, whether I would have or would not, because I think that um, I trust your taste so much that I know I'm going to get something out of the book. And I would just like encourage listeners to do that as well. Just one summer, sit down and say, I'm going to read every book on this list and don't save all the ones you weren't interested in till the end. Just kind of intersperse them so that you're not feeling like you get to the end of the summer and you're like, here are the five I didn't want to read. 
I guarantee you those five you thought you weren't going to read, one of them is going to become your new favorite book. I promise you. Kat, there are 50 books in it this year. That's a lot of books. That's like two months. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love how it sounds. You've ingrained the habit of asking yourself when you read a book, not just do I like this, but who would like this? Mm -hmm. One of the things I love to do when I read a book that's not for my company in particular, or we thought it was us and we don't want to pursue it is I reach out to my other development friends and say like, I think this is for your company or... Mm -hmm. I think your boss would love this, or I think your streamer is looking for this. Um, So I like to be a little bit of a book matchmaker. That's not necessarily my job title, but what it does is it really helps me stay engaged with a book that I'm not necessarily enjoying and thinking like, well, who is this for? Mm -hmm. And getting it into the right hands. That's so interesting. If you only read, only seems like a funny word choice there. But if you only read 70-ish books a year, how are you choosing what to read for yourself, knowing how much and what kind of books you read for work? Well, one of the great things about my job is that I do get to read books you know, 12 to 18 months ahead mm-hmm. of time. But what that means is if I know a book is not going to be for my company, I just I don't get to read it. So I throw it on my Goodreads list. and I'm like, I'm going to get to it someday. And I, I don't ever get to it. So I really do turn to like bookish podcasts <laughs> to remind me what's coming out or what I might have missed. Um, like listen to all the books every week because every Tuesday they're like, here are the books that came out this week. And I'm mm-hmm. like, right, I meant to read that. And I go and I grab it from the library. Or this podcast. And I'll hear you recommend a book that was on my list from two years ago. I'm like, yes, that book. And so often that's where I'm being reminded of a book that was on my list that I meant to read that I just let pass. Um, And then I go pick it up from my library or my local indie and get to dive in. And you know, 70 to 100 books a year, I try to make mine, but also like I do love my job and I do love the books I get to read for them. So it doesn't feel like, oh, this is a workbook and this is my book. They're all books and I get to take in a lot of them. I'm so glad to hear that's how you feel about your work reading and pleasure reading. Kat, you said something interesting right at the beginning of our conversation about how you've really enjoyed seeing how YA as a genre has evolved in the last five to 10 years. And I'm so interested in hearing more about that. I think that... For a long time, YA was a lot of white kids riding their bicycles through town and encountering one surmountable problem and it's all over. And a lot of YA was just about like teenagers in love or teenager with cancer, you know, and all these things. And and I love those stories too. Clearly, I grew up on those stories. But what I've really appreciated about YA is I think that genre as a whole is ahead of the curve in telling more diverse stories, to be frank. Um, In YA, I see more characters of color. I see more characters across the gender spectrum, across the sexuality spectrum. Um, I see issues that aren't just, you know, teenagers in love, but teenagers dealing with things that teenagers do deal with. And, And we're acknowledging that in books. I feel like in reading YA, I have a better understanding of the world as a whole and the world around me and Mm -hmm. people who are going to be leading our world when I'm like an old person in a rocking chair. And I'm really encouraged by that. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so interested in hearing what you specifically are drawn to, which I think that means it's time to talk about your books. 
Okay, this is the part I'm I'm nervous about. <laughs> so you've been thinking about this for many, many years, and you landed on these three, which it sounds like you had to go from the gut because you didn't have time to overthink it. You just wanted to send in that form. How did you choose these, Kat? I literally just the three books that popped into my brain when I sat down to fill out the application. I didn't let myself go through my Goodreads. I didn't let myself like revisit my bookshelves. I just said like, what are the three books that I want to talk about that I have not heard discussed on the show? I did give myself that parameter. When I think about books that I'm drawn to, Gordon Lish has this incredible quote. It's write your heart on the page and people will read to find out how you solved being alive. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is stunning. So these three books that I want to talk about are all books where I feel the writer on the page. I feel their heart. I literally, in one case, it is the writer on the page. It's nonfiction. <laughs> I feel their heart. I feel them problem solving their own existence. Um, and I'm just, I'm just really drawn to that where people will lay themselves bare for their readers. Um, because I think that even if it's a very specific story and one that maybe I didn't personally identify with, I can watch them traverse their situation or their trauma or their life or their joy and, and learn from it. But I also really dig like YA rom-com and just happy stories too. <laughs> I really do. Well, I hope we get to talk about both today. So you get to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. Let's jump in. What's the first book you love? The first book is The Opposite of Loneliness by Marina Keegan. This is one of my top five books forever and ever. So Marina was uh, 22 years old when she graduated from Yale in 2012. She'd already been published by the Paris Review, the New York Times, the New Yorker. She had a show going up in an off-Broadway festival. Like She was a highly accomplished writer and was leaving Yale to start a internship. And five days after graduation, she tragically died in a car accident. And um, her mom and her teacher at Yale, Ann Fadiman, also an accomplished writer, put together a book of Marina's work. And the first half are some of her fiction stories, and the second half is her nonfiction. And when I tell you these stories are so good, you will do what I probably do what I did. When I finished the book, I got so angry that I would never get to read anything else of hers again. And I sat on my couch and I cried and I don't cry when I read. And I cried because I was like, this is, this is all we get from her. And I turned the book over and started again. She's just so good. <laughs> She's so good. Um, she writes about, you know, first love and first cars. She's got this great story about, you know, finally having to move on from that car you inherit in high school and all the memories and the stories. And you find that piece of trash. And what did that trash represent? She talks about first loves and moving away from that when you're young and think that is the forever love. But also she has these like profound stories that I just don't understand how a 22 year old ever came up with. One of my favorite pieces of fiction in the book is called Reading Aloud. And it's about an older woman, I think she's in her 60s, 70s, somewhere in there, who works as a, not a caregiver, but a, a companion to a young blind man. So she goes to his house and she reads his mail to him or any notices that have come or whatnot. And over the course of this time at this house, she starts to undress. 
and not in a sexual way, just in a way of like, she feels bold and seen and, and like she's doing something crazy in this life of hers that has started to feel a little stagnant. And where as an older person, she's starting to experience being unseen in our world. And you read that and it's just a beautiful story on its own. I mean, if, if Barbara Kingsolver wrote that, we'd be like, whoa, but a 22 year old wrote that. And I just, there's so many stories like that in the book where I just don't know how Marina possibly felt and understood things that deeply because at 22, I certainly didn't. Um, And it's just one of those books that I can go back to over and over and over again and find something new. She has this beautiful quote, I want enough time to be in love with everything. And she did write about that a lot. She wrote about, you know, we're only 22. We have so much time left. Take a risk, do something crazy. You know, don't, don't settle down and be a consultant at 22, 23, 24. Like these are the best years of our lives. And yet she also had this like prescient understanding of her own passing and that every moment is a gift. Mm -hmm. And she writes a lot about, well, when I die this and when I'm gone this, and I want this to be my calling card. And so in a way, like you knew she knew that her time was limited. I don't know. I just, I read it and it takes me on these highs and lows and it's the book I give so many people. And if you have a graduate in your life coming up, it's the perfect graduation gift. Um, it's not maudlin. Don't, don't think like, I'm not going to give this book about this girl who died. That's not at all what the book's about at all. It's about connection and love and living every moment. And I I, I cannot recommend it more highly. Please go buy it. (laughs) I won't even try to add anything to that. Kat, that was beautiful. What's the next book you love? All right. The next book, big turn here, Slay by Brittany Morris, which I think I have heard you recommend once or twice, but I don't think it's gotten its total due on the podcast. Let's see what we can do then. Yes. So when people ask why I love YA, like this book is the perfect example. And it's the book that when someone says, oh, I don't like YA, I give them this book and say, you do. I promise you. you (laughs) And nine times out of 10, they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the story Slay is about um, a 17-year-old girl named Kira Johnson, and she is African-American. And she, she's a coder. She's super smart. And she creates this and develops and codes and everything, this game called Slay. And it's about Black culture. And it's for Black people. And so how you get an invitation to this game is kind of word of mouth, like this little, you know, you pass it to your Black friend and you pass it to the Black parent or the teacher or whatever. So people are are secretly invited to it and not in a way to be exclusionary, but just, you know, to keep the game um, for the people it was intended for. What's special about the game is they play gods and kings and queens and as opposed to slaves, which is where in the video games that are more mainstream, that's a lot of where we see the black characters. They're slaves or they're sex workers and and whatnot. And this is like they get to be in their power. The players duel each other with these cards that are about black culture. So you really have to be in the know in, in a fun way. And because the game is really open to and relevant to black players, you know, they don't really experience the racism that they get when they're playing more mainstream games. Eventually something really tragic happens in the community and 
the game is blamed. People start hearing about it and it's blamed for kind of the controversies that start to come about. And in fact, Kiera is threatened with a lawsuit for anti-white discrimination, which readers, listeners, not a thing. Um, (laughs) So she kind of has to confront like, is this game problematic? Did I do the right thing in excluding non-Black people from this game and whatnot? And what I, I just, without saying more, like what I really love about this book is first, Kira is an exceptionally wonderful protagonist. She's intelligent and she's unapologetically Black. Um, She's a coder, which we don't see a lot of girls in STEM in books. We're starting to, um, but we certainly don't see a lot of women, girls of color in STEM. So that was exciting to me. It's a book about Black identity. um, And I am not Black. I am very, very white. And I learned so much from it. And not that I feel like it gave me every answer, but that's not for me. I just felt like it was it was praising Black identity in like a really beautiful way. But I think my biggest takeaway from this book, and one I've carried actually throughout the rest of my life, is that it's important to have sacred spaces for people of color. And I, as a white person, can work towards equality and inclusion, but I also need to be okay with sacred spaces that are not for me. And that being just as important as inclusion. And I think this book really speaks to that in a beautiful way. It's compared a lot to like Ready Player One meets The Hate You Give. And sure, I think like if you were in a bookstore and they're like, if you liked this, you'll love this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But this book like stands on its own in an incredible way. And I I don't want to see it reduced to something beneath those two books. If you have a youth who is interested in these types of stories, please put this on their bookshelf. Now, I think I know the answer, but I'm not the professional here. Kat, would this make a good book-to-screen adaptation? I think this would make an incredible adaptation. I don't know if it's been optioned. I don't have it at my company. I know that, which makes me sad. But, (laughs) you know, you could really do something cool with it where you've got the two worlds, right? We see mm-hmm. Kira in her real world dealing with, she goes to an all white school. You know, she's there because of her academics. I don't remember if she's on scholarship or not, but you know, she definitely is like having to code switch a lot. So we're seeing her in that world. And then we get to see her as Emerald, her alter ego in this game where she gets to be in her power and not have to worry about who's around her. And she's interacting with people in a way where she feels like her authentic self. And I just think it'd be so cool to see those two worlds juxtaposed on screen and where they start to conflict and whatnot. Oh, a really cool thing I meant to mention is if you go to the website for the book, I just discovered this, they have the cards on the website. So you don't get to play like the full video game, but you can kind of get a feel for what kind of cards are being flipped. And I flipped a couple and again, I'm super white and I just was like, I don't know what these represent, but this is so cool. That is so cool that that exists. Well, with the potential adaptation, I was thinking it's fast paced. The writing is so cinematic. Kira is mm-hmm. a protagonist that you want to follow around and see see how she's living her life. But I love to hear how your brain works with the two worlds and like the potentials you can see just as a reader and the potential you can see in the story for adaptation. Kat, what is the third book you love? Okay, the third book 
Get ready. Don't don't fast forward, people. Stay with me on this one. It's My Dark Vanessa. It's not a YA book, but it does have a central young adult character. And I would argue that the adult protagonist is stunted by her experience as a teenager. It's a dark book. It's, it's necessary, though. Um, and I think that what I love about this book is we often shield teenagers from things we think we don't want them to know about. They know already. I promise you they know. And this book does deal with grooming. So I think when it came out, a lot of people were like, well, I I can't read that. And I encourage you to give it a second shot because this isn't your typical book about grooming. I think it's rather nuanced and, and there's so much to learn from it. So My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. (laughs) It's told in two timelines. Vanessa Y, um, she's our protagonist. We see her at 15 years old and at 32. And at 15, it's 2000, the year's 2000. She's at her boarding school, not really fitting in. It's not like the greatest boarding school, but she got in and she's a middling student, doesn't really have a lot of friends. Um, She's kind of a loner from the backwoods. And it's not a school where like the rich kids versus the poor kids at all. She's just kind of one of those teenagers who doesn't fit in. And she meets her teacher, Jacob Strain, who, you know, really encourages her in her writing. And Vanessa finds herself in her writing. She's like, wow, I'm actually good at something. This is amazing. And she is, she is truly good at it. And of course, we see over the time that Mr. Strain is grooming her. And that relationship starts to happen. The majority of the book is in 2017. So the height of the Me Too movement. And Vanessa's now 32. She's still kind of eh, just, you know, wandering through life. She's working at a hotel. Um, She's dating, but nothing serious. She hasn't quite got her life together. And it's just clear she's very stunted. A woman reaches out to her and says like, hey, I think that I was groomed by Mr. Strain when we were at the school and I am coming forward with it and I want you to join me. And, and Vanessa is shocked and she's like, I, I wasn't groomed by him. I don't know what you're talking about. And so this book is really about Vanessa coming to understand what happened to her because she never saw it that way. She never saw herself as a victim. She never saw it as anything except a consensual relationship. And in the height of this Me Too movement, she's starting to hear these stories from women and reading all these reports coming out. And she's really begins to recontextualize that relationship. And I think that's what I really loved about the story is it's a version we hadn't seen before. We now have a lot of Me Too stories coming out. They're so important. I'm not diminishing them. But I know for a few friends of mine during the Me Too movement, that was what was going on is them realizing that a relationship they had actually couldn't have been consensual or it was based in power versus what they still classified as, you know, kind of not great romance. And I think it's important for women to understand that, that like, it doesn't have to be a big, huge thing for it to have been wrong. It could have been at the time you might have perceived it as lovely and it was still wrong. And you still might have scars from that. <laughs> and I think it's why I also think it's a good book for not young readers, but certainly, you know, teenagers, early 20s, is really understanding these relationships and how they happen. Because I think what Kate Elizabeth Russell does so well in the book is shows that it's not obvious at all what's going on. He's just an encouraging teacher. And he's just saying, 
you're really good at this. Don't let this school beat you down. <laughs> like, please. And then one day it's a hand on a knee that could just be an encouraging, like, hey, you're doing great today. But then that hand on the knee becomes something else and becomes something else. And this is a place where I feel like when we shield our children from this understanding, they're more likely to fall victim to this situation. The book is dark, it's raw, and it's sad, but it's just so important, and it's so beautifully written. Um, there's not a big happy ending, but there is hope. Kate writes this beautiful moment of hope just at the very end of the book. It's like the last two pages. You just get this breath of like, Vanessa's going to be okay. And that, to me, makes everything else in the book just perfect. So relevant and, and important and perfect. That's a wonderful description. Kat, tell me about a book that was not a good fit for you. This is not technically a YA book, but we all have to read it in high school. So I'm just going to put it out there. I think The Great Gatsby is trash. I <laughs> despise this book. Um, I was first introduced to it in ninth grade, part of regular curriculum. And I got to the point that Daisy says, about her daughter, <laughs> I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in the world. And I was like, nope. I tried and tried and tried. And so finally I went to my English teacher and I was like, look, she knew I was a big reader, you know? And I was like, look, I can't read this one. Give me something else. And she was like, okay, that's interesting to me. She goes, I personally thought you would really dig this book. I was enrolled as the student of a teacher at a pretty prestigious private school. I was the poor kid. I never fit in there, you know, and, and now in retrospect, I understand what the teacher was saying. <laughs> she goes, here, I'll make you a deal. You don't have to read this book if you just write me three pages on why you don't think this book is relevant to you. And I was like, great deal. I was a smart kid, but apparently not smart enough to understand that I would have to read the book in order to <laughs> write that paper. <laughs> Um, so I ended up reading the book a few times because I was like, oh, I've got to find, where was that passage on this? And this means this and whatnot. So brilliant teacher. I wish I remembered her name. Um, if you happen to be listening, well done you. <laughs> it's interesting because maybe every decade since high school, I revisit it because I meet someone who it's their favorite book and they give me a compelling reason why. I have read this book now probably 10 times just to prove how much I hate it. When I think about the books that I really respond to, it's about grounded problems and grounded people. And what I find about The Great Gatsby is I think I'm annoyed that Gatsby wants to fit in with the crew on East Egg. And that's so much so that he like sacrifices himself in so many ways to be like them. And then in the end, they still sacrifice him for their own security. And the one redeeming thing is that Nick, you know, Nick is sitting there the whole book being like, oh, and Gatsby's so cool. And Gatsby's like, oh, Daisy and Tom are so cool. Gatsby, spoiler alert, dies. And then Tom's like, oh, maybe he wasn't so cool. Yeah, dude. I could have told you that 200 pages ago. And yes, it was a different time. He was commenting on a different era. It's about the disillusionment of the American dream. The green light is a metaphor. I know, and I just don't care. <laughs> I feel it's deeply uncool to say so, but I love this book. Kat, what have you been reading lately? The first book is Imogen, obviously, by Becky Albertalli. It just came out um, this May. I think it's Becky's best, and I, I stand by that. It is absolutely her best, and I'm a big fan of Becky Albertalli's. 
So the story is about Imogen Scott. She's a senior in high school. She's committed to this college that she's really excited to go to. She's a hopeless romantic, hopelessly heterosexual. And then she decides to go to this college that she's committed to for a weekend visit. She knows a friend of hers from home is there. And she goes and spends the weekend there. And the friends are all, they all identify as queer in various ways. And she spends the weekend with them. And she's like, this is cool, like great group of people. And and while she's there, she meets this girl, Tessa. And Imogen feels things she's not felt before (laughs) and gets those butterflies in a way that she's only really had for boys before. And so she leaves that weekend and starts to really question what she's feeling. And she gets home and she shares that with a friend of hers who identifies as a lesbian. And that friend of hers at home kind of takes it in the wrong direction and accuses Imogen of wanting to fit in with this new group of friends and that she was just being gay for the weekend and whatnot. And I don't want to say more than that, but most of the story is about Imogen really trying to reconcile, like, is that true? Or do I really have these feelings? And And really starting to understand who she is internally while also dealing with external feelings about her sexual identity. If you know anything about Becky Albertalli, you'll know it's a deeply personal story for her. I think because of that, it's the best writing we've seen from her. And I would encourage everyone to give it a shot, particularly those of you who might have negative feelings about Becky's own journey or the books she's written before, because I think it really can open one's eyes about the personal journey people go on to figure out their sexuality and that it isn't always a thing that's clean cut. It doesn't always happen at 16 years old and you know forever. It can be a journey. Um, It can be something you don't realize until you're in your 30s or 40s. And Our job is not to judge, but to give space for that questioning. Um, And I think the book really does that in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. I've heard great things about it, and I'm so excited to hear how much you loved it. What else have you been reading lately, Kat? The other one, uh, oh gosh, I wish I could just buy a thousand copies and send them to everyone today. It's I Loved You in Another Life by David Arnold. It is being published, I believe the date is October 23. It's about Evan and Shosh. They're two teenagers. Evan is a senior in high school. Shosh has just graduated. They've both experienced tremendous loss in different ways, and they're just trying to survive when we meet them. Um, They're in each other's orbits, but not really connected other than by this weird song they both often hear. It might be coming from like mom's bedroom, or a bird seems to be tweeting it, or a car drives by and they hear it on the radio. And that's really our only connection between these two. The book mostly lives in present day as the two of them like navigate their changed realities. But what's really cool is it weaves in these seemingly random vignettes from other times and places. I think the first one we go to is like mid 1800s in Paris. And we meet these people who are just, you know, it's a two page vignette about their life and their story. And we don't know what's going on, but you know, you're smart. You've read the title. I loved you in another life. You know what's going on. Um, (laughs) So these threads that hold the story together, they're delicate, but like really profound. And I always love a book about grief and how to carry on when your heart is like broken beyond repair. And I love a story about two people who are running out of hope finding each other. David's writing is incredible. I think this is another book where anyone who underestimates YA writing 
should take a look because I would argue that David Arnold's prose would absolutely compete with any and all literary fiction. Kat, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? Well, my 2023 reading goal is to read fewer books and really cherish them. I think because of the hamster wheel of my job, I will finish a book and immediately start the next one. Like not get up and get a drink of water. I literally just open the next book. And so I don't really get to sit and contemplate them. And because of that, I don't remember them. (laughs) I feel terrible, but I just kind of have to, especially if it's not something we're interested in, um, I just have to kind of delete it and move on. And I've read some incredible books. I mean, one really great example is Lauren Groff's upcoming book, The Vaster Wilds, absolutely her best. It is stunning. It is incredible. I read it in one sitting. I pre-ordered my own hardback copy. (laughs) I have told everyone I know to pre-order this book. And other than maybe being able to tell you a two-sentence logline, I could not tell you anything about this book anymore. Other than the feeling in my body that it is one of the best books I've ever read. Wow. So I think what I'm looking for are backlist titles that I've maybe had to pass up on when they first were published. Like they didn't get the attention they deserved. They weren't going to be something my company was going to pursue because I often have to chase what we hope will be like the hottest, most buzzworthy title when it publishes in a year from now. I often miss some of the less buzzy titles. I throw them on my Goodreads and I'm not really able to revisit them. I'm personally drawn to stories that are quieter and more internal, which, as I've said, don't make for good TV. Um, We Are Okay by Nina LaCour is my absolute favorite book. And it's like deliciously slow burn and very internal. And yet, like every time I revisit it, my heart like explodes with how stunning it is. Okay, Kat, I'm thinking of a bunch of new titles that I think would work for you, but we got to go to the backlist to make you happy. Although I do really appreciate knowing that you have found yourself able to be happy with any number of things. So the books you loved were The Opposite of Loneliness by Marina Keegan, Slay by Brittany Morris, and My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. Not for you was The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. You want your problems and your worlds to feel more relatable. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Lately, you have loved Imogen, obviously, by Becky Albertalli, and I Loved You in Another Life by David Arnold. I do want to go back for you per your request. Okay, YA backlist? I'm so excited. Hit me. I'm going to get them all (laughs) and probably read them all this week. (laughs) I have a deceptively sweet book for you from 2017 that seems like a girl next door kind of story. I mean, it is a girl next door kind of story. This is A Short History of the Girl Next Door by Jared Rack. This was his debut. Is this one you're familiar with, Kat? No, I'm so excited. It's rare I haven't heard of a book. I feel like this one flew under the radar. And I want you to know that Jared Rack is a teacher. So <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that makes me think that he knows, he knows how teenagers talk, how teenagers act. It's his job to get up in their brains every day. Um, he has a newer book that's called Donuts and Other Proclamations of Love, which is great. But this new one is about, it's about trauma. And the books that we talked about today make me feel like this is a really excellent fit for you, but I don't want to give you the details. If you were talking about this book with someone who'd read it, you'd have a very different conversation with them than we're having right now. 
completely avoiding spoilers because they're big and they're hard and they matter significantly to the plot. But this is about a teenage boy who is in love with the girl next door. They're great friends. He wants it to be more. Their relationship is so sweet. He's so hung up on her. But meanwhile, she starts dating the star basketball player across the street. He's not literally across the street, but. (laughs) And then when tragedy strikes, everyone gains a whole different understanding of appreciation for reluctant acceptance of the fact that relationships can't always be what we want them to be, that Mm -hmm. love takes all kinds of different shapes. I feel like I'm not doing this justice because I can't tell you what happened. So obviously, you know it's not something good. Like I'm stepping around it so much. But, But the way normal childhood first love is so deeply interrupted in this book and the, I think, unexpected direction Rec takes the plot is a result is something that makes me, I mean, I read this in one day in 2017 and we're talking about it now and it still feels really like fresh and visceral to me. And it's because of the story. I love this. And I truly cannot believe that I've never even heard of it. That's, that's special. I'm glad to hear it. How about Lamar Giles? I really love Not So Pure and Simple. I don't know that I've read anything else of his though. Okay. I'm glad to hear it because I think you may really enjoy Spin by him. Listeners, I should say that Lamar has been a podcast guest. So if you want to hear him talk about his work in his own words, you can go back and do that in our archives. So this book sounds a little bit like Slay and that there's a strong, like almost mystery component and definitely like Let Me Hear a Rhyme because of the musical connection. And really, it has echoes of the opposite of loneliness. So this is about a 16-year-old DJ with a super promising career, like destined for greatness, so talented. People can't wait to see what she does next. But she dies at 16. There's a huge impact on the local music scene. When it comes out that she has been murdered, of course, everybody wants to get to the bottom of the crime. But also it's discovered that she was on the verge of signing a major, major deal that would have made her an even bigger star at 16 than she already is. And so that brings everybody's motivations into question. So you get to hear about the music, the mystery, the relationship drama, and all those elements that I think you really enjoy in your your books. There's hard things, there's friendships, there's race and identity and the arts and finding your way and coming of age. And you said you're surprised that you missed it, but does that sound like something that is a fit for you now? Absolutely. I think what I really love about Lamar Giles' writing is um, he's so good with nuance. I think he takes these issues that could just be broad strokes and really gets into the crevices of them. And and I just I always walk away from his books with like a greater understanding of of an idea or topic mm-hmm. that changes me in a way. Um, his book, not so pure and simple, was life-changing for me as an adult. Um, I grew up in the church and in the purity culture, and it just kind of shined a light on things I hadn't yet processed. So I'm really excited to just dive into this one and see what things I can learn, because it also feels like it ties a little bit into Run Towards the Danger. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad my mom is dead of of a young person being heavily influenced in an industry that could easily take advantage of them and like what did happen. So I, I am very excited to read this. Kat, there's a new story on the tip of my tongue. It's not backlist. It comes out in June, but can we go there anyway? I would love that. You mentioned really loving stories about two characters who are running out of hope. 
And it's interesting. You've mentioned that you love quiet books where so much of the action happens internally. And yet I also think of you as really enjoying stories that have lots of big feelings. Am I wrong about any of that? Or can all these things be true? I think they can all be true. I think that's what I love about teenagers and teenage characters is they can have these huge feelings and then they get in front of the person that they have these feelings for and nothing is said. And so you know what's (laughs) bubbling underneath (laughs) and you're just waiting for it to come out. And it usually does. I think that's what Becky Albertalli does so well, especially in Imogen, obviously. Like you're just waiting for the explosion of feelings. Okay. Then we need to talk about this book. It's a debut. It's called Talking at Night and it's by Claire Deverly. I'm not making any promises, but I inhaled this debut in a day. And it's not its not short. It's 300 to 400 pages. But it is a passionate, deeply felt love story. And it is an adult novel. But so much of the book, I'm going to say a third. I am making that up from memory. Might not be completely factually accurate. But it happens <laughs> when the three main protagonists are teenagers. There's a girl named Rosie, short for Rosemary, her twin brother, Jack, and their bad boyfriend, Will. They're all friends, sort of. And I can't tell you about the plot, but I need you to read it so we can talk all about the plot. But this story is about pursuing what you love and what fills you. For Rosie, it's music. For her brother, Jack, it's something else. For Will, it's fixing cars. Rosie and Jack have parents that are very absent. Uh, The mom's a lawyer. I don't remember what the dad does. They're never around. These kids don't feel loved, but they have each other to love. And Will has a loving grandmother, but a mother who is a drug addict and is just completely off the scene. That's obviously a big hole in his life. And they are an unlikely trio. Actually, it's two pairs. Will and Jack as friends. They bond over math tutoring. And Will and Rosie. Rosie's a good girl. Will's a bad boy, but there's still a spark there. Um, She's really into him, and she never thought he'd be. And they start becoming friends. And the three of them becoming friends together is almost impossible. Mm. And then stuff happens. And when I say stuff happens, I mean stuff happens for years and years and years and years. The story takes them from, I'm going to say 16 or 17, to 20, 25 years later. And it is about finding what you love. It's about finding the person that feels like a perfect fit. It's about lots of big feelings. It's about knowing what you want, but feeling it's impossible to make it happen because how getting what you want will hurt those who are closest to you. Mm -hmm. It is full of big drama, which I think will exhaust some readers, but will just delight others. That definitely included me. I love this book. And I think it's going to include you. If you've read the book One Day by David Nichols, the story is not the same. It doesn't have that kind of structure. It doesn't have that kind of writing. But the tone was so strongly reminiscent of that David Nichols book I read a long time ago. This is out in June. I can't wait for readers to read it so we can all talk about it together. I think it might be a fit for you. How does that sound? I am so excited, (laughs) A, to get a jump on the summer reading list because, as I've said, I read the entire thing. It also feels like um, what I really loved about... Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow of these three friendships, big feelings, expansive world, and how what you just said, getting what you want sometimes is damaging to other people. And so I'm just, I'm really excited to dive into this because I have had a Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow hole in my, in my world. 
I'm so glad that sounds good to you. I do want to say that there's some pretty serious content warnings that come along with this book readers. So if you are sensitive, you know, I always invite readers who check out the summer reading guide, like to ask me, like I've read everything cover to cover, reach out, say, Anne, you got to tell me real talk, what is happening in this book? And I will let you know, but there are obviously massive spoilers involved in sharing that. So I'm not going to do that without you asking for it. But Kat, knowing what you read, I think you're good to go. And I think you're going to love it. We covered a lot of ground today. We touched on A Short History of the Girl Next Door by Jared Reck, Spin by Lamar Giles, and Talking at Night by Claire Deverly. Of those books, what do you think you'll read next? Oh. (laughs) I think what's going to happen is I'm going to go to my library and pick up Spin and Short History of the Girl Next Door and probably start Spin tonight. And then I'm going to immediately email my book scout and ask for him to slip me talking at night (laughs) so I can read it ASAP. But man, something about spin and my love for Lamar Giles, that's got to be number one. I'm happy to hear it. Kat, this has been so much fun. Thank you for sharing your insights into the world of book to screen and talking YA with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to just speak with you and to hear about books. And I'm really fascinated by the fact that you came up with three books I haven't heard of before. So (laughs) you really are magical. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Kat, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. Find Kat on Instagram at Kat Ramsburg, K-A-T-R-A-M-S-B-U-R-G. And find the full list of titles we talked about today at what should I read next podcast.com. Readers, reviews are our love language as podcasters. Here's one from listener Becky, who recently said, I love getting so many good book recommendations from this podcast. And even when the guest has very different tastes than mine, the interview alone is still worth listening to. Thank you, Becky. And I also want to point out that so many readers say every week they find wonderful suggestions that are perfect for them from the books that aren't to the taste of a particular guest. And they learn something about their own reading life by listening to another reader talk about theirs. If you have a review to share, we would be thrilled to hear it. Pop on over to Apple Podcasts and let us know what you love about the show. And make sure you're following along in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our free email list to make sure you keep up to date on all our news and happenings. Get on that list at what should I read next podcast.com slash newsletter. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is created each week by Will Bogle, Holly Wilkachevsky, and Studio D Podcast Productions. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Roca said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>